Academy Award and Emmy Award-winning producer Brian Grazer has been making movies and television programs for more than 30 years. As both a writer and producer, he has been personally nominated for four Academy Awards, and in 2002, he won the Best Picture Oscar for A Beautiful Mind. Over the years, Grazer's films and TV shows have been nominated for a total of 43 Oscars and 162 Emmys for shows such as 24 and Arrested Development. His latest television production, Empire, is a favorite of both critics and fans. Grazer's films have generated more than $13 billion in worldwide theatrical, music, merchandising, and video grosses. Beyond his exploits in the entertainment industry, Grazer is also the New York Times best-selling author of A Curious Mind, The Secret to a Bigger Life, a smashing success which spent four weeks on the bestseller list. In 2011, the Producers Guild of America honored Grazer with the David O. Selznick Lifetime Achievement Award. His accomplishments have also been recognized by the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In this fascinating conversation during an Ivy Ideas Night in Los Angeles, Grazer recounted many illuminating and often hilarious anecdotes from his journey to the top of the Hollywood food chain, and opined about the important connection between entertainment and entrepreneurship. Please enjoy our conversation with Brian Grazer. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. We're going to dive right in, um, and I'm going to ask you a question to kind of take us back to the very beginning. So before you were insanely successful Hollywood mega-producer Brian Grazer, you were insatiably curious boy Brian Grazer. What were your early experiences that shaped what would later happen in your life and that made you curious? Um, okay, so um, I'll take you all the way back. Um, so as a kid, I was very curious, a very curious kid. Uh, I didn't know I was going to eventually kind of use that as a tool um, or as a superpower to have some sort of competitive edge, some way to differentiate myself. I just was a kid that asked a lot of questions. And, um, but I had this little grandmother, this tiny grandmother, maybe that big, I don't know, but very tiny, um, named Sonia. And Sonia was a champion to me, and whatever I did, um, in Sonia's eyes, I was doing it with excellence, and and she would um, introduce a lot of things to me, always into a new restaurant, because I was really interested, even as a six, seven-year-old kid, I was interested in a lot of different things, and she, that made her excited and got me into different universes, whether it was a restaurant, or Hollywood Raceway, or endless amount of different things. Um, and then I had this kind of unusual little question because I was sitting in her convertible Cadillac car and a bee landed like on my shoulder and I said, like, what, what, what goes faster, a car or a bee? 
to my grandmother, and she thought that was kind of like a question that required some real answer. And the car sped off, the bee stayed on my shoulder, the bee eventually left my shoulder. I guess it was a matter of physics, but in any event, um, that was a, sort of a question that sort of stuck with me um, and sort of signaled that that was kind of my uh, or a moniker as to the direction I was going to go. And my grandmother said, these questions of your curiosity is going to be so important in your life, and she'd always offer a lot of validation about that. And even when I would have, I had report cards um, that were <laughs> like all Fs, like literally, <laughs> literally all Fs. A success was a D. And she was looking at these report cards and saying, you're going to be special. Think big, be big. You know? She was that person. And I'm thinking, wow, she, she's crazy. She, there's like no empirical evidence whatsoever that would support that I'm going to be successful in anything. Because there's the report card year after year after year. So that kind of was the beginning of, um, you know, sort of the orientation in my early life. And But she really was supportive of me and, support, and validated this sort of initiative that I had. And um, you want to go further? Like how, then you'll fast forward to, um, you want to, where's Megan go? To, okay, let's fast okay. forward. So that was the sort of beginning of the questions. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's super cool because it's- We only have three hours here. Yeah, yeah, I hope you guys are reading me for a really long time. Um, that's great, it kind of validates that, you know, all it takes is kind of one person to believe in you and validate what's special about you. And, and that can fuel a whole lifetime of success. So how the heck did you end up in Hollywood? How'd you break in? Hollywood's hard to break into. Okay, so this is a, uh, I'm gonna try to really compress this story. So went to USC, I didn't know I was there, but I was there. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, graduated USC, and I saw there was a bunch of very wealthy kids that I was going to school with. They were going to their parents' business, and I thought, what am I gonna do? So I kind of thought about that in my junior year, got, took the LSAT, got into USC Law School. Thought, well, I guess I could do that. That, that could do something, maybe that's it. Um, in the summer that preceded law school, I just accidented into a job at Warner Brothers as a law clerk. But literally, I didn't know that I was even living in a city where entertainment was being made. I was a really, really innocent, naive, a kid, and uh, I mean, it could have been literally could have been Kansas, could have been Nebraska, could have been anywhere. I did not know that there was movies and television being made. I didn't think of it like that. This is not how I grew up. And all of a sudden, I was at Warner Brothers as a law clerk in a tiny little office. Got to be this big. You know, it's like a five by seven, no window little office. And I just had to deliver papers, and but I didn't have very many papers to deliver. So you'd sit around, and eventually oh, they'd say, oh, you're going to deliver some Warner uh, Brothers uh, documents to somebody. So pretty early on, I was, I was told I was told I had to deliver some documents to Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty, of course, was a huge movie star, writer, director, movie star, etc. And so I'm driving my little car, actually they gave you a car in mileage, and I drive to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel because Warren Beatty lived at Beverly Hills Hotel. So Beverly Wilshire Hotel. I get there, an assistant to an assistant comes downstairs, says, I'll get to take the papers, pump, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, I say, no, you know what? I just thought of this in a moment. I go, I have to deliver hand these papers directly to Mr. Beatty. <laughs> They challenged that, and I said, I'm sorry, but unless these papers are 
handed by me to Mr. Beatty directly, even for a fleeting moment, they're invalid. me to another assistant. I got through that barrier. Pretty soon I was in a huge suite where he lived. And I turned, I generated a conversation with him. I just started talking and asking questions. And I kind of knew who he was. Um, I mean, a little more than just kind of. And all of a sudden I'm an hour in his living room, you know, having a drink with Warren Baby and asking him <laughs> meaningful questions. And, and I thought, this is amazing. I can do this. <laughs> so... Then I had other papers delivered. The most powerful agent in the world, her name was Sue Mingers. I did a similar thing. She ran, she had all of every single big movie star, uh, you know, uh, Barbara Streisand. I, can, I don't want to go through all the names. Steve McQueen. And, uh, I say, I don't want to go through the names, and I am. But, so, in any event, so I created a conversation with her. Da 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 da. Uh, the, William Peter Blatty wrote The Exorcist, the book, one of the biggest books of all time, like a literary aberration. I'm just supposed to deliver papers to him. The exorcist. He's a scary guy, too. <laughs> so, he had a beach house. He had a house manager or a butler. I say the same thing. I'm a little bit, you don't have to be a little bit inventive or uh, resourceful. Get in. All of a sudden, I'm on his deck on the beach sipping an espresso. I didn't know what espresso was. So, um, and then that sort of went on. Then I thought to myself, then what happened? There was a break. You stop me if you want me to take a poo, by the way. So, so then what happened is, I'm doing this for about two months. I'm supposed to get to go to law school very soon. And a big, huge office opened up. The senior vice president of business affairs. It was my boss's boss. Got fired. My boss was head of the legal department. He started with Jack Warner. So he was in his mid-70s. And he just checked out after lunch. You know, like it was, it was done. Then this guy gets fired, and this office was a huge office right outside the executive suite of the chairman, vice chairman of uh, Warner Brothers. I say, can I get that office? I lobby to get the office. He gives me, gets me the office. Now I'm in this huge office. With, and in the day they had speaker phones. You know, that was like the power of move talking speaker box. So I'm not like talking in a speaker box to people. But I'm just like a punk, like a complete punk, like 22 years old. And then I realized, not only can I do the same trick on people that I have to deliver papers to, but I'm going to invent my own little scam. And, and, you know, and every single day, call someone that was running the movie or television business, the chairman of every company in the movie or movie business. I, um, and I'd say, hi, my name is Brian Grazer. I work at Warner Brothers Business Affairs, which was true. <laughs> And then, and I uh, know quite a bit about your boss. I say a few very interesting insights to the assistant. I want to meet him, da da da, and I do not want a job. Every single person complied. Every person said yes. So when I realized every person was going to say yes, I said to my boss, Peter Connect, who was at work that one day, I say, I'm going to stay, go to law school, push it off a year. I meet Lou Wasserman who's the most powerful, he is the most powerful person in all of the entertainment. He was the Brian Grazer of his day. <laughs> so, 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 I meet him, and he 
looked at me kind of like as I approached him. I'm on the 15th floor. It took a lot of work. Uh, I had to meet his assistant at her parking spot. Uh, she didn't know I was going to meet her. And I said, well, I'm that guy that calls, da 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 da. Anyway, I got in to meet the Wasserman. He's on the 15th floor of the tower at, at Universal. And as I'm approaching him, he literally holds his, head, holds his hands up, don't come near me, like that kind of a look. Because so, he could see right through me that I was totally full of shit. And that I was just an ambitious, I was like, whatever I want. And he goes, look, I'm gonna say hello to you, but that's about it. Now you just stand still. So, so I stand still, he does not want me in his office. It's super clear, he doesn't want me inside, I contaminate his office. And at any event, he goes into his office, comes back with a, with a, a, a very thick, it's called a 2H pencil, number two pencil, and a legal tablet. He puts, he says, take this. He puts the tablet in one hand, the pencil in the other. He says, put the pencil to the paper and it's worth more, it has greater value than it did in separate, in se in separate parts. Yeah! So, okay, I take my stuff, I get in the elevator, my little pad and pencil, and I realized what he was saying is, not only was I full of shit, but that I was going to have to manufacture leverage, you know? In the case of, in, in the content business, manufacturing leverage is like inventing the invention of ideas, manufacturing ideas. And I thought, I was a pretty imaginative kid, so that's what he's saying. So I was going to channel that curiosity, and, and I was going to write ideas. And I was cut, long story short, I did that, uh, produced movies for TV, a 20-hour miniseries on the Ten Commandments, I was 25 years old, and then pretty hot on TV, my boss, Michael Eisner, Barry Diller, thought, fuck you, we're firing you, because, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. It was, it was wrong for so many reasons to say that. Okay, so, um, in any event, this could go on time. So, in any event, um, I was kind of getting kicked out of the TV business, but I was writing this mermaid movie called Splash. And so, I thought, I gotta finish this script before I get really kicked off the lot, because then I got less juice, you know, like no franchise, no base of operation. And, um, but I finished it, they, put, they, they kept me on, I lobbied some people that kept me on, I wrote the script, turned it into a big hit movie, and then, uh, I'm not for an Oscar for it, and here I am talking to you. <laughs> Lie to get in the room, and then ask a lot of questions, right? <laughs> well, you know, I'm trying to slide straight from Brian Grace's So then you turned this, so curiosity got you in the room, curiosity got you asking questions, but then you turned curiosity into a practice, almost a discipline. Can the entrepreneurs in the room do something like that? How do you do that? Oh, you can definitely do that. Um, you use, use curiosity as a, a disruptor, um, which I've done in my life. And But basically, when I did all the lying that we're talking about, I, I was actually doing homework. So I don't want to it sounded a little glib about it, but I was actually doing homework. I was reading a lot about the people that I was going to try to meet, um, and I was asking really good questions. I was literally getting, I was getting pretty deeply into their psyche in a way that was flattering to them and beneficial to me, and I was less learning a lot, and it was expanding my, you know, intellect, my vocabulary, which is essential, 
and sort of, and it would expand where I would, sort of my emotional being. And it broke down every prejudice I would have about whatever their job, whatever I imagined their job to be. Because whatever we imagine is never what it exactly is. And so one of the things that, that people say about you when you're not listening is that you're one of the the most well-liked guys in Hollywood. You haven't made a ton of enemies the way the way many people have as they've kind of climbed this ladder to success. And I just we were chatting in the back and you were saying, you know, every time you do a movie, you put together hundred to five hundred people and you've got to make them all go in the same direction and produce something. How do you how do you do that? Do you do the con curiosity conversations give you an instinct for human nature? Wow. Okay. What's the secret? Oh, that's cool of you to say. Um, yeah, about being well liked and all that. Well, okay. <laughs> um, well, if you have some humility, um, and I hope I've shown you I have some. Um, <laughs> well, I definitely do. Um, <laughs> um, so, in any event, so. You do have to get people, you have to create a community every time you make a movie or television. And since I've produced over a hundred movies, and like five or six hundred hours of television, some of these things you've seen, each one of those is an entrepreneurial effort, it's a startup from scratch. And what my strength is usually, um, because I've used this curiosity and we don't really have time for it, to kind of learn about worlds. Um, so if I produce Eight Mile, I learned about hip-hop 10 years before that because I was in New York City listening to a local radio and I heard ODB. They go, ODB, and I'm thinking, then he goes, Old Dirty Bastard. I'm going, what guy wants to be called Old Dirty Bastard? And I thought, he's making a choice to be called that. And I thought, that's really interesting. So I tracked down ODB, I get to meet him. That turned me on to Slick Rick. I'm thinking, a guy with a patch, he's getting carried out with crowns on his teeth and everything. So that got me sort of understanding what hip-hop was a little bit, I mean, this little world of it. I started thinking about it, and it took a long time, but then I was able to create what 8 Mile was. Now, what 8 Mile is, and a lot of these movies are, they have an exterior which represents, hopefully represents, what's going on in the culture. Either is going on, or being underestimated. In the case of hip-hop, it was thought of as an inferior subculture, and I had you know, many New York establishment people like Frank Rich would go, would think of it as such, and I was feeling like after meeting all those, like Rick, etc., Chuck D, that it wasn't an inferior subculture, that I was going to try to create a premise or an equation that would prove it was the culture, not the subculture. So that was the exterior element. The interior was all about self-worth. So a lot of my movies and television shows access on a thematic. Just like your businesses, they, sh they should, I believe, have a thematic, a reason for being. The reason for being should become a story, and the story should be able to be said. So that's essentially what I do with movies. I think that's essentially what you do with your companies. Um, okay, so to go further to your question about creating communities. So you have a very short period of time to, to, to make a movie because it can cost $500,000, $750,000 a day to make a big movie. Okay, so that time is extremely perishable and you want to make absolute use of it, okay? How do you do that? You understand what your story is, you understand how to create the perfect foundation, meaning the right people, 
right director, right actor. How do you do that? Based on research, based on informed intuition, etc. Uh, character, and then you all align on what that story is, and it's emotional destination. <laughs> Movies and television should have an emotional destination. I'm sure you can find a way to adapt that to what you're doing. So everybody has to be in alignment with that, and then you ask a lot of questions to every, those 500 people. What do you think we're doing? What's going on? What does it look like? I always like to know what something looks like. Because if they tell you what it looks like, you can know whether you're in alignment in terms of the dream and the goal. You always want to know what people's, I always want to know what their dream is. If this was the best thing you could imagine it could be, what would that look like? Okay, done. Okay, so that alignment, I mean alignment, it's right, right? You've got to somehow get a bunch of people on the same wavelength, moving in the same direction, so I love that. What happens, so part of the entrepreneurial journey is inevitably a little bit of failure along the way. What happens when there's not alignment? I mean, when you fail, when you things fail, melt down. When things are not working, when things melt down, what do you Okay, I have a lot of, I have, thank God I have a lot of good successes that have affected the culture, but I also have failures, for sure. Um, usually, my failures come because of a bunch of reasons. One is, um, I didn't, I, the heartbeat of what I was doing didn't access on a thematic that I had total belief in or that I thought through. Okay, so I like thematics that have, that are universal, like self-worth. Self-worth, there's respect, there's a lot of things that go around self-worth and love and humanity. I like positive resolutions, that means, doesn't, it means happy-ish endings. <laughs> now, in Friday Night Lights, they lose the game, but they become more complete people. Okay, back to the failures. You asked a question about failures, sorry. Um, okay, so I produced a movie uh, called American Gangster, which I really liked. Like, it, was, it gives me tremendous happiness that that movie got made. Um, and it was like, I really, really wanted to make this movie, because I, I love gangster movies. They come, they're very hard to create, very, very hard to find authentic, uh, uh, t you know, tools or information that could create a, you know, a, a gangster movie. They operate on certain dynamics that excite me, like, um, but uh, American Gangster was about respect. So I don't know if you saw this movie, where Denzel Washington plays a character that becomes a heroin dealer. But he didn't really, he didn't, wasn't born wanting to be a heroin dealer. He was born just poor, poor African-American, and he, in uh, North Carolina, and he found his way to New York City, and he really just wanted to be like everybody, accepted and respected, and could not, and was abused, and sort of accidented into this, and, I, and, he, and that was the, his vehicle. But ultimately, the movie, to me, was about respect and about corporate America, because how do you judge what that is? Um, so the failure was, I was working on it, I had Denzel Washington and Benicio Del Toro and a different director and the studio fired everybody two months before the movie was going to shoot. So it was a 30 million dollar write down, which would have been the biggest write down of any studio just flat out write off before it even got released or made. So having had hundreds of people turn me down on a mermaid movie, I thought, 
I'm not going to really let them turn me down. But then they said, GE, who owns Universal, doesn't want to hear the word American or gangster in the same phrase ever again. What? So then... This is where gangsters are born. Can't do it. So, so, so they're writing... Writing down their thirty million dollars, I'm really deeply depressed. I've worked on this movie over five years, and so my startup just crashed. Next day, I'm taking a shower. I get out of the shower, I think to myself, "Wow, I'm deeply impregnated by this idea. I love it so much. Um, I don't think I should wait a year before I bring up American Gangster. I think I should do that today." <laughs> and that was like twenty-four hours later. But I thought. I better improve my story, like recontextualize it. Just don't say, hey, let's do it again. Don't be like, you know, just ask the same question, like make it a better situation for them. So I was able quickly to re-sign Denzel Washington, the movie he just got fired from, um, <laughs> get Russell Crowe, who was an Oscar-winning actor, to be in it, uh, in a role that was barely written, and to get Ridley Scott, who's like directed Gladiator, amazing, amazing, amazing director to do it. And then they, as much as they didn't want to hear American Gangster, they had to hear it and they did it. So, so when you recontextualized it, you saw impending failure, yeah. you, your startup was falling apart, yeah. and you just found like a new angle, a new way to tell it. A new angle, a new, yes. And a lot of things, and I bet you this could work for your world. It's perspective, it's like your entry point into it. Like, so, um, yeah, it's your perspective. If you, if you shift perspective, that is a way of bettering your hand too, often. And maybe the curiosity conversations give you the ability to kind of shape shift your perspective because you've seen and felt through other people's eyes or words. Yes. Um, okay, so speaking of these curiosity conversations, I read the book, and the one that I was most fascinated and amused by was Fidel Castro. Will you tell us a little bit about meeting <laughs> Fidel Castro and what he said about your hair. <laughs> that? Okay. Okay. I don't know how. Yes. Okay. Of course. So, <laughs> so I went with five other friends of mine to Havana. I decided I'd create like guy trips. And so it had to be like, maybe I said, I think it was like 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. So it was very much a communist country. Uh, uh, controlled by a dictator, Fidel Castro, that was very healthy at the time and of an exhausting sort of oratory. He could speak for eight straight hours, much longer, much longer than I can. So, um, how long did he speak during your conversation? Okay, so this is what happened. So we finally got away. I, I found a way to meet with Fidel Castro. We were all, had our planes. We're leaving, and then somebody eventually said, "To make the story short, said, oh, he'll meet you today. We're on. We're in our airplanes, leaving." No, he'll meet you today, and we'll have lunch with you. We all go, I guess we'll do that. So all of a sudden, we're at the um, military palace where Fidel Castro was hosting us for lunch, for a 12 o'clock lunch that went till 6.30 at night. Um, so that was kind of a little bit of a departure shift. So in any event, but he's talking, he literally, he, I see why he was such a successful dictator. I mean, <laughs> he can talk forever, he knows every little detail about this little island called Cuba. I mean, he knows what one kilowatt would turn into. You know, he knows every single thing about the physics of this particular island, and he's, 
you know, he's very, very, very persuasive. He speaks for three and a half hours. I don't think he even took a breath. <laughs> and then, all of a sudden, he looks up at the six of us, and he looks at me. He points at me like this, he goes, how do you do your hair? take some questions from, from the audience. Um, last question from me. Tell us about your hair. Because, <laughs> no, it sounds like a shallow question. There's actually some depth to it. There's a there's rhyme and reason to your hairstyle, and we want to know about it. Okay. Okay, so, <laughs> my hair. Well, it isn't very high. It used to be very high, but I, I think I want to change a little bit. But in any event, um, so, I wrote and produced the movie Splash, as I told you. But I had a really famous partner that I loved, but he was one of the most famous, he is one of the most famous American icons. And I couldn't get differentiation. I mean, in other words, like he was so famous that like, it wasn't, I couldn't, I didn't feel like my accomplishments were getting recognized because they were so deep and so eclipsed by this extremely famous guy who really rooted for me, but it was, just couldn't do it. And um, I always thought, like, how can I differentiate? How can I, I mean, physically, just the optics, because optics are super important. Um, so I was thinking about it, and I, then I have other, there are, there are four or five other producers that were sort of equal to me. They all had beards, and they're, they're I've got, there's a journalist here, so like, keep it uh, sanitized. This. But, um, but they all had beards, they're pretty aggro. I wasn't, I couldn't grow a beard. And I'm not really aggro. I mean, they throw trays of spaghetti on assistants and stuff, and then become famous for that and stuff like that. I wasn't, I wasn't really that guy. Um, but, I, but I was still struggling for like a, you know, cosmetic identity or something because <laughs> I couldn't grow a beard and all that. So what happened is I had to be swimming in my, in my swimming pool. My daughter was in the pool. She was young, like six years old, and I popped my hair up, and she said. Oh, I like your hair like that. Something like, it was, it was cornier than that. But, you know, I like your hair. And so, um, so I go, really? So we go to the bathroom. I realize my hair's popped up like this. And then I decided what I would do is like get some gel and make it this way. But it was very much longer. And people did not have my hair, their hair like this. And it was extremely polarizing. I know, like today, today. And today's time is like not a big a deal, but it pissed people off. <laughs> I mean, like people really got mad at my hair. <laughs> and I thought, this is really interesting. Like a couple people would go, that's cool, but I didn't buy it, you know? <laughs> and, but it would, it would make people like, it was so much like people were going, who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> and I thought it was making them really primal, really mad, and I'm thinking, Thought, you know, I'm just going to stick with this uh, because it's like getting attention. It's differentiating. It's making people emote. And I, thought, I actually kind of thought it was making them say what they really wanted to say to me, regardless of that. It was a Rorschach test. It was a Very good. Yes. And then the most powerful, again, another powerful person in the show. This is my agent, um, very powerful guy, uh, Michael Ovitz, said, 
you gotta change that hairstyle because no one is digging this hairstyle and it's not gonna work for you, man. And I thought about it and thought, oh, he said something to do with like, you know, actors or something. And I thought it triggered the thought of like, wow, it's a dividing line between the man and the artist. So I thought, okay, I'll make this choice. I'm gonna be with the artist, not the man. So, because I could get money from the man to make my movies because I was being successful, but as artists, the people that create, execute, the ones that I really want to have a vocabulary and really a trust with. So I just stuck with that choice and it's Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.